and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kong. Thank you very much for listening. In the last episode of our series on the life and times of American politician Huey Long, we covered the eventful first year and a half of Huey's tenure as governor of Louisiana. After having established control over the state's government apparatus, Huey began to work towards achieving various aspects of his progressive vision for the state. At the top of his agenda were plans to overhaul the state's road system, and a plan to provide school textbooks to the state's school-aged children, at the government's expense. While both of these projects got off to a promising start, Huey soon found himself struggling to come up with the funding necessary. To alleviate this issue, he proposed a series of taxes targeted at the petroleum industry in general, and at the Standard Oil Company in particular. In retaliation, Standard Oil, in an alliance with anti-long politicians, spearheaded an effort to get the governor impeached and removed from office. In early 1929, some 19 charges, ranging from bribery to blasphemy, were brought against the governor. Of these, only eight went from the House of Representatives to the Senate for a trial, where a two-thirds majority vote was needed to convict him. Huey and his allies worked feverishly behind the scenes to secure the signatures of 15 senators to a document, wherein the signatories agreed not to vote to convict the governor on any of the eight charges, regardless of what evidence was presented. With a two-thirds majority vote now impossible to attain, the Senate adjourned on May 16th, having failed to convict the governor. The entire impeachment ordeal had a profound effect upon Huey. His associates tend to claim that he was no longer the optimistic young politician that he once was. The main lesson that Huey seems to have taken away from the impeachment trial was that strictly legal and democratic methods were no longer sufficient to achieve his political goals. Huey still believed strongly in the ideals of economic justice and whatnot, but his methods to bring about such ideals became, from this point onward, increasingly authoritarian. Huey's first actions following the conclusion of the impeachment saga were to punish those who had attempted to remove him from office. Almost immediately, he ordered recall elections to be held for nine legislators who had opposed him during the impeachment trial. Any state employees who had sided with the anti-longs during the trial, or who were even related to those who had sided against him, were also the targets of Huey's vengeance. He had these people fired from their jobs and replaced with loyal longists. All the while, Huey made an effort to reward those who had stayed by his side throughout the whole ordeal. The 15 senators who had signed the document promising not to convict Huey were all given lucrative jobs in the state government, or were otherwise duly compensated for their services. But while Huey lashed out at some of his old opponents, he also sought to make peace with others. Specifically, he sought out an alliance with the old regulars, the powerful group of democratic politicians based out of New Orleans who had prior to Huey's ascent to power, essentially run the state's politics. They had opposed Huey up to this juncture, but after having seen him emerge from the impeachment trial as the undisputed political boss of the state, they saw it fit to throw in their lot with the long camp. The official head of the club, the newly elected mayor of New Orleans, T. Sems Walmsley, met with Huey in early 1930 to negotiate the terms of an alliance. Huey agreed to support infrastructure projects for the city of New Orleans, if Walmsley got his allies in the legislature to vote for Huey's proposals. From the very beginning, Huey had always demonstrated a certain disregard for the traditional decorum of politics. This trait, too, was brought to the forefront following his impeachment. On March 1st, 1930, the German cruiser, the SMS Emden, arrived at the port of New Orleans. 
She and her crew had traveled there as part of a diplomatic mission to secure goodwill between the United States and Germany. The captain of the Emden, Lothar Arnold de la Perriere, and the German consul in New Orleans, Rolf Jaeger, paid a courtesy call to the governor at his unofficial residence at the Roosevelt Hotel. Much to their shock, Huey came out to greet the German delegation dressed in green silk pajamas. Evidently, the governor had overindulged in the Mardi Gras festivities the previous night, and could not have been bothered to dress himself properly. Anxious to avoid a diplomatic incident, one of Huey's aides promptly whisked him away as the offended Germans returned to their ship. The next morning, Huey, now dressed in a proper suit and tie, paid Captain de la Perriere a visit on his ship. Evidently, the conversation between the two men was rather amiable, with the captain describing Huey as a very intelligent, interesting, and above all, unusual person. On October 29, 1929, the American stock market crashed, precipitating the Great Depression, the worst economic crisis in the history of the United States. It was not long at all before the Depression brought all its worst effects, high rates of unemployment, dramatic drops in per capita income, and widespread business failure, to Louisiana. Huey, in his position as governor, was well-equipped to deal with this crisis. He used his position to initiate large-scale infrastructure projects that would provide stable, well-paying jobs for the citizens of the state. One such project was the construction of a new state capitol building. Huey's opinion of the current state capitol was much the same as his opinion of the old governor's mansion, which he had ordered to be demolished a year prior. An old, Gothic Revival-style building on the right bank of the Mississippi River, the old state capitol was completed ten years before the outbreak of the Civil War. It was, in Huey's mind, an outdated symbol of all he despised about the old political order. Huey was not the only critic of the building. Sharing his opinion was a young Mark Twain, who, in 1883, wrote of it, quote, It is pathetic enough that a whitewashed castle, with turrets and things, materials all ungenuine within and without, pretending to be what they are not, should have ever been built in this otherwise honorable place, end quote. Huey recognized the urgent need for a new modern capital building to take the place of the little sham of a castle, as he was fond of calling it. In January 1930, Huey made an appearance before the State Board of Liquidations in order to request the $5 million he would need for the construction of a new capital building. He received the funding without any issue. By November of that year, plans had been finalized and the preliminary construction work had begun. The structure that Huey had envisioned was one that defied all Southern architectural conventions. His new capital was to be a 24-story-high Art Deco skyscraper, a state capital that, to this day, holds the distinction of being one of the most unique in the entire United States, a modernist monument to progress, and a clear symbol of Huey's intention to drag the state of Louisiana, kicking and screaming, into the modern era. When asked by a reporter what he intended to do with the old capital, Huey gleefully responded that it should be simply auctioned off to an antique collector. The first priority on Huey's agenda when the state legislature convened for its 1930 session was to secure funding for a massive overhaul of the state's road system. In this era, Louisiana was rather notorious for the poor quality of its roads. This was a problem that Huey had inherited from his predecessor, Governor John Parker. While on the campaign trail, Governor Parker had promised to enact a program of road construction. However, the results of this project are encapsulated in the epithet Parker acquired before he left office, the Gravel Roads Governor. When Huey took office in 1928, 
the entire state of Louisiana had about 6,000 miles of roads. Of these, only 300 miles were modern, paved roads, and the rest were antiquated, made of gravel. Huey had begun to work towards alleviating this issue as early as 1928, but he was rather strategic about where he had roads modernized. He had modern roads built in seemingly random locations, so that the locals could get a taste for them, which ensured that he would receive their political support in the future, so that he could have a mandate to finish what he had started. The few roads that he had constructed were, admittedly, rather shoddily done, and required extensive maintenance as early as a year afterwards. Now, however, Huey decided to finish what he had started. In order to finance these new roads, Huey needed to take out a loan of $68 million, but in order to take out the loan, Huey first needed both houses of the legislature to improve an amendment to the state's constitution that would raise Louisiana's debt ceiling. When the time came for the House to vote on that proposed constitutional amendment on March 11, 1930, the support that Huey had expected to receive from the old regulars, as per their agreement, was nowhere to be found. Walmsley had turned against Huey, and ordered the old regulars in the legislature to vote against every measure favored by the governor. Without their votes, Huey could not hope to acquire the two-thirds majority that he needed. Enraged at this betrayal, Huey moved to cut off state funding to the city of New Orleans entirely, a move that angered conservatives across the state. In the Senate, too, his proposal failed thanks to the interference of his lieutenant governor turned bitter enemy Paul Sear. Huey merely retaliated by vetoing whatever appropriations bills managed to make it to his desk, including a request for travel funds from Lieutenant Governor Sear, with Huey declaring that Sear would not be going anywhere, and therefore did not need the money. On July 16, 1930, Huey shocked the whole state when he announced that he would be running for the United States Senate. The reason this news was so shocking was because Huey still had two years left in his term as governor. For Huey, this decision would be quite the gamble. He was placing his entire political career on the line. If he lost this election, his career would be essentially over. Why would he make a decision with such astronomical risks involved? Multiple factors had to be considered. The first and most important consideration was the simple fact that Huey's ambitions had, from the very beginning, extended far beyond the borders of Louisiana. As he had confided to his wife Rose shortly after they were married, Huey planned to win an election to a small state office first, which he did in 1922, then go on to win the governorship, which he did in 1928, and then move on to the Senate, which he now planned to do in 1930. From there, it was only on to the presidency. The second factor was timing. Huey's term as governor ended in May 1932, and, per the state constitution, a sitting governor could not seek re-election. Meanwhile, the term of the incumbent senator, Joseph Ransdell, expired in March 1931. Renstell was a political fossil, having been a member of Congress since 1899. He was, by all accounts, old, ineffectual, and unintelligent, and as such he was far more desirable as a campaign opponent than his counterpart, the far more popular and energetic Senator Edwin Brossard. Thirdly, Huey saw this election as a sort of referendum on his performance as governor. If he won election to the Senate, the state legislature would essentially be forced by popular demand to accede to Huey's agenda for the state. Finally, a victory in a senatorial election would provide Huey with the opportunity to further consolidate his control over the state. There would be a brief period of about four months between the beginning of Huey's term as senator and the end of his term as governor. 
However, Louisiana's state constitution forbade an individual from simultaneously holding a federal and state office. To circumvent this, Huey declared that he would not take his seat in the United States Senate until he had concluded his term as governor. Addressing concerns that leaving the Senate seat vacant for four months would harm the state, Huey shot back that under Ransdell, the seat had effectively been vacant for 32 years. There was, of course, a danger that Huey's lieutenant governor, Paul Sear, would succeed him in office as governor when Huey went off to Washington, D.C., thereby threatening to undo all the progress that Huey had made in office. Huey assured his supporters that Sear would, quote, never be governor of the state, not even for one minute, end quote. If Huey did indeed wait until his term as governor expired, he would be replaced by whoever won election in 1932. Huey planned for his replacement as governor to be one of his loyal supporters, so that with a puppet in charge in Baton Rouge, he could still run the state from Washington, D.C. Huey had good reasons to believe that things would go all according to his plan. Sure, Ransdell had the support of the state's political establishment, the old regulars, but throughout his term as governor and even before, Huey had built up a powerful apparatus that would ensure that he could give any opponent a run for their money, in terms of both funding and in terms of organization. The fact that Huey had failed to secure the endorsement of any one of the state's 18 major newspapers was of little consequence to him. He had never enjoyed a particularly good relationship with the press. Beholden as they were to the state's moneyed interests, they attacked Huey relentlessly. When he announced his candidacy for the Senate, the press predictably erupted in outrage. The Shreveport Times, for instance, denounced Huey as, quote, a reprobate of the first order, a man possessing neither culture nor refinement, a man whose every act, both public and private, is an affront to good taste. He's a blasphemer, a ruffian, and a cad, end quote. The New Orleans State, meanwhile, reported that, quote, Huey Long is the liar, crook, petty larceny thief and scoundrel who is now governor of Louisiana, who seeks to perpetuate his evil power by not only controlling the governorship, but by representing this great state in the United States Senate, which would be a disgrace and a dishonor, end quote. This perceived lack of fair treatment by the press was the primary motivation behind Huey's decision to launch a publication of his own in late March 1930. Dubbed the Louisiana Progress, this newspaper was to be Huey's own personal media outlet, a platform where the truth could be reported according to his own standards. Features such as a movie review column, a sports page, a stock market commentary, and a lonely lover's column were included to give the paper an air of legitimacy. But undoubtedly, the Louisiana progress was, first and foremost, political in nature. The actual news it reported was intended to either make Huey and his allies look good, or to make his opponents seem bad. The front page almost always contained an editorial authored by Huey himself. The Louisiana Progress met with immediate success. In the first few months of its existence, the publication managed to circulate between 40 and 50,000 copies across the state. Huey used the front page of the Louisiana Progress to announce his candidacy for the Senate. From the very beginning of this campaign, Huey proved to be just as vitriolic, if not more, than he had been in the past. The campaign quickly devolved into what one author described as one of the nastiest campaigns Louisiana had ever seen. The front page, which announces candidacy, also featured a rather rude caricature of his opponent, emblazoned with the caption, quote, Louisiana's world-famous archaeological exhibit in Washington, D.C., hailed as a genuine cross between Rip Van Winkle and Old King Tut, end quote. 
Throughout the campaign, Huey hardly referred to his opponent as anything other than the insulting nickname Feather Duster Ranstell. Huey's opponents responded with their usual indignation. Anne Pleasant, wife of former Governor Ruffin Pleasant, described Huey as, quote, possessing the qualities of lower animals, the greed and coarseness of the swine, the cunning of the fox, the venom of the snake, and the cruel cowardice of the hyena, end quote. Her husband, on the other hand, called Huey a, quote, ultra-socialist, worse than Marx, Lenin, and Trotsky, end quote. Huey made his appeal to the people rather clear from the outset. Time and again, he cited the legislature's sabotage of his infrastructure plan as proof that his opponents sought to override the will of the masses. Quote, If the people did not want this program, if they believed that the state should be ruled by a few men, then they should vote for Ranstell. But, if you believe that Louisiana is to be ruled by the people, that the poor man is just as good as the rich man, that the people have a right to pass on issues themselves, if you believe that this is a state where every man is a king but no one wears a crown, then I want you to vote for Huey Long for United States Senate. That is the platform that I am running on. End quote. Allegedly, Huey's performance that night awed all in attendance, despite, or perhaps because of, the fact that he was blackout drunk during the entire thing. On September 1st, a little over a week before the election, a spectacular incident occurred which threatened the Long campaign's entire effort. That day, a man named Sam Irby contacted the Ranstell campaign headquarters, offering to provide evidence of widespread corruption within the state's highway commission. That the Highway Commission was rife with bribery and other types of graft was somewhat of an open secret. At the time, it was the subject of an investigation by the anti-long attorney general of New Orleans, with the hopes that the results of the investigation would somehow damage the long campaign. Irby was the perfect person to provide inside information on the commission's goings-on. This is not only because he was an employee of the commission who had been recently fired by Huey and was bent on revenge, but because of the fact that he had a somewhat of a special connection to the governor. He was married to the aunt of Huey's secretary, Alice Lee Grosjean, and as such, he was quite close with Grosjean's ex-husband, Jimmy Terrell. Irby was an unofficial member of the governor's extended family, and he had been spotted consorting with them in public many a time. The Ranstell campaign jumped at the opportunity Irby's defection presented them. Once Irby's betrayal was made public information, Irby, now knowing that he was a wanted man, flew from New Orleans to Shreveport in the dead of night on September 3rd, and checked into a hotel room under an assumed name. His friend Jimmy Terrell joined him there shortly afterwards. Unbeknownst to either of them, the two men had been followed. As they slept, six armed men barged into the hotel room and kidnapped them. Naturally, rumors began to spread like wildfire as to the whereabouts of Irby and Terrell. Some believed that they were being held in the infamous Angola State Penitentiary, while others believed that their dead bodies were lying in a remote bayou somewhere. When asked to comment on the men's disappearance, Huey claimed that they were being held in the Jefferson Parish Jail for some undisclosed crime. The Attorney General of New Orleans, concerned with the sudden disappearance of his star witness, requested that Huey be served with a subpoena, ordering him to appear before a federal judge to explain his involvement in the men's disappearance. As the marshal went to Huey's suite in the Roosevelt Hotel in New Orleans to deliver the court summons, a reporter for the New Orleans State item named William Wygand placed himself among the marshal's retinue and slipped into the suite undetected. After the marshal had done his duty and departed, Wygand loitered, hoping to gain more information. Huey singled out the reporter and demanded to know who he was. 
Wigan freely identified himself, prompting Huey to launch into a tirade against the lying press that ended with him calling Wigand a son of a bitch. Wigand retaliated immediately by punching Huey across the face. He was quickly restrained by two of Huey's bodyguards. As they held him, Huey punched Wigand in the face, claimed they were even, and apologized for insulting him before his bodyguards unceremoniously threw the man out of the suite. Huey complied with the court's summons, but he maintained his statement that he believed the two men were being held in the Jefferson Parish Jail. Of course, Huey did know more about the two men's whereabouts than he would reveal. After all, he was the one who ordered their abduction. The six men who broke into their room on the night of September 3rd were plainclothes members of the Bureau of Criminal Identification, Huey's personal secret police force. Once the two men were in custody, Huey held an emergency meeting with his closest associates, to discuss what should be done with them. Huey's brother Earl, hot-tempered as ever, bluntly suggested killing them. Huey responded by kicking Earl in the shin and yelling at him, quote, Get out of here. I don't want to be a U.S. senator or anything else if I have to murder somebody. End quote. More level heads agreed that Irby and Terrell should simply be sequestered somewhere inaccessible to the press or judicial officials, at least until after the election. Huey agreed and ordered his men to transport Irby and Terrell to two separate but equally secluded hideouts. Both men, who had reputations for alcoholism, were given plenty of bootlegged liquor to keep them sedated during this time. Then, two days before the election, a radio address broadcast from Huey's suite in the Roosevelt Hotel seemingly put a rest to the swirling rumors. After a brief opening statement, Huey introduced a very special guest. It was Sam Irby. Irby, who had clearly been coached beforehand on what to say, began reading off a statement the Long Camp had prepared for him. Quote, This is Sam Irby speaking to you, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, I am the Sam Irby that was supposedly kidnapped. There never was a more complete lie told on Governor Huey P. Long in his entire life. End quote. Irby denied that he and Terrell had been kidnapped, and instead claimed that they merely made a split-second decision to go camping. The second Irby finished reading his statement, Huey's men whisked him out of the room, threw him into the back of a car, and sped off, pursued by local police, until they finally managed to lose them in a New Orleans suburb. As Irby was taken from the room, Huey uttered a conniving chuckle, and jokingly told Irby to give him a call if he ever ran into any trouble. And with that, the incident that New Orleans Mayor T. Semmes Walmsley called the most heinous crime in Louisiana history was concluded. Public interest in the story evaporated seemingly overnight, even though a week later Irby recanted his statement and changed his story to claim that he had indeed been kidnapped by the governor's men. This seemingly went unnoticed by the press or by the public at large. Two days later, on September 9, 1930, the Democratic primary was held. Huey Long defeated his opponent, the incumbent Senator Ransdell, by a margin of 57 to 43, as Huey won an outright majority and runoff election would not be held. The Republican Party, as it has been explained earlier, only offered a token opposition to the Democratic candidate in each election. With his victory here, Huey Long was effectively a United States Senator. The scope of Huey's victory stunned his opponents. In the wake of this victory, any anti-Long opposition practically shattered. The Constitutional League, an opposition group founded by former Governor John Parker in March with the intention to, quote, prevent Governor Long from treating the state constitution like a mere scrap of paper, end quote, announced its dissolution the morning following the election. The wealthy business interests who backed the group financially decided that it was more to their interests to back Huey rather than continuing to oppose him. 
More surprisingly, the old regulars of New Orleans had reached a similar conclusion once more. The election had not only seen Huey himself win election to the United States Senate, but a number of his down-ticket candidates had won election to state offices as well, including three representatives in the New Orleans area. Prolonged forces now controlled a ruling majority in both chambers of the state legislature. Huey was now well-positioned to assist New Orleans with its multitude of issues, including the decrepit state of their infrastructure. If, on the other hand, they continued to oppose him, Huey could strangle the life from the city. Local elites in New Orleans realized that they had much to gain and nothing to lose but their pride if they bent the knee to Huey. Leader of the old regulars, Mayor T. Sems Walmsley, was not at all predisposed to submit himself to Huey's agenda, but eventually succumbed to pressure from the lower ranks and at least agreed to meet with the governor and senator-elect. Huey drove a hard bargain. He would agree to repair the city's deteriorating sewers and streets and to invest in the port if the old regulars threw their full and unconditional support behind any and all legislation he sponsored. Additionally, Huey would not grant any concessions that would allow the old regulars even a modicum of their former political power and authority. For instance, he reserved the exclusive right to select his own candidates for House and Senate seats in New Orleans. When one of the old regulators spoke up to voice his displeasure with this arrangement, Huey fired back, quote, You've got no rights. You're a captured province. End quote. With no leverage with which to speak, Walmsley agreed to Huey's demands. While the dissolution of the Constitutional League and the capitulation of the old regulars were no doubt great victories for Huey, this is not at all to say that all political opposition faded away overnight. A small cadre of politicians, some in the legislature, others in retirement, continued to oppose him, but they made up an absolute minority. A week after the election, Huey called a session of the state legislature to pass appropriations bills for his various projects. With greater numbers of prolonged legislators in both houses than ever before, including the old regulars now, Huey was able to get these bills passed virtually unopposed. The House overwhelmingly approved $68 million for a new road construction, $5 million for the new state capitol, and $7 million for a new bridge in New Orleans. Only 12 voted to oppose. Huey also took the opportunity to have all the impeachment charges against him from the previous year formally expunged. Huey had a little over a year left to serve as governor before he could take a seat in the United States Senate. He spent much of this time becoming increasingly involved in the affairs of LSU. Louisiana State University, or LSU, was, and is to this day, the premier university in the state of Louisiana. Founded in 1853, LSU now occupies a 95-acre campus in the state's capital city of Baton Rouge. The past decade had seen a decent expansion of the university in terms of attendance, faculty, and in infrastructure. But while the university was undoubtedly the best in the state of Louisiana, on a national level, it was considered a C-tier school at best. Initially, Huey had very little to do with the university. He approved appropriations bills here and there, but he did not, for instance, attend the annual graduation ceremony, as previous governors had. He began to get intimately involved in the university's affairs following his impeachment trial in 1929, and then only because a personal issue merited his intervention. That June, the university's board of trustees had selected for the university president one Campbell Hodges, but when Huey learned that Hodges was one of the founding members of the Constitutional League, he put pressure on the board to select someone else. The board settled on a man named Thomas Atkinson, who was inoffensive enough to Huey. But when Atkinson suffered a non-fatal heart attack later in the year and resigned shortly thereafter, Huey took it upon himself to personally select his replacement. 
coming very highly recommended to him was a man named James Monroe Smith. A fellow native of Wynn Parish, the Columbia University-educated Smith seemed as good a candidate as any to Huey. After a brief interview with Smith, Huey decided that he liked him, and ordered the Board of Trustees to confirm him as president immediately. Smith is described as a rather competent and effective administrator, but he was ultimately beholden entirely to the whims of Governor Long. According to one anecdote, when Smith paid Huey a visit shortly after his appointment, dressed in a somewhat shabby suit, Huey threw him a wad of cash and told him to go out and buy a new suit, so he could at the very least try to look like a president. From that point onwards, Huey began to take a very proactive role in the university's affairs. He was very much determined to bring the university up to his lofty standards. When Huey first took office in 1928, the school boasted some 1,800 students, 168 faculty members, and its annual budget was a mere $800,000. But from 1930 onward, Huey directed hundreds of thousands of dollars into the university budget, greatly expanding its campus infrastructure, hiring on hundreds of new professors, and bringing enrollment up from a mere 1,800 to 7,000. By the time Huey had finished most of his reforms, LSU ranked 20th in the nation in terms of size. Thanks to Huey's efforts, a sort of intellectual rejuvenation occurred at LSU, with more important research and writing being published through the university press than ever before. Of course, not all was perfect in Huey Long's Louisiana State University. His critics noted a distinctive lack of academic freedom when it came to topics sensitive to Huey's sensibilities. One professor claimed, quote, We were all so scared we couldn't say anything. I'll bet there wasn't the word dictatorship mentioned in any sociology or government classes. End quote. Under Huey's direction, dozens of new buildings were erected on campus, including the university's first female dormitory and a new fine arts building with a magnificent art deco theater. In the center of campus, he ordered the construction of Huey P. Long Fieldhouse, which at the time boasted the second largest swimming pool in the country. When Huey found out that there was a slightly larger pool at a different university, he had the workers extend the pool to the point where it was technically the largest in the nation. One particular pet project of Huey's at LSU was revamping the school's marching band. When Huey visited the university for the first time, the band was pitifully small, numbering only 28 members. Huey saw to it that the ranks of the band were expanded by nearly tenfold. By the time he had his way, the band had 250 members, making it the largest in the nation. The fact that many of the new recruits had no musical ability to speak of and had merely been chosen for their ability to march in a more or less straight line was immaterial to him. He had the band members dressed up in the most expensive and flashy uniforms that money could buy. He personally selected the drum majors and the cheerleaders, as well as the band director, his friend Castro Carrazzo, who had formerly directed the orchestra at the Roosevelt Hotel. Huey and Carrazzo collaborated to compose two school fight songs that can still be heard at LSU football games to this day, Touchdown for LSU and Darling of LSU. Huey even promised to make Carrazzo director of the Marine Band when he became president. Huey was immensely proud of the LSU marching band, and he relished every opportunity he could to lead it personally. Once, as he led the marching band through the streets of New Orleans during Mardi Gras celebrations one year, a crossing guard attempted to stop them. Huey responded by raising his baton in the air and declaring, quote, Stand back, this is the kingfish, end quote. Another object of Huey's affections was the LSU football team. LSU's record in football was just as middling as its record in academics and attendance when Huey first took office. 
As Huey himself summarized his thoughts on the matter, quote, I don't fool around with losers. LSU can't have a losing team, because that'll mean I'm associated with losers. End quote. Huey became absolutely obsessed with the idea of turning the LSU Tigers football team into an athletic powerhouse. To this end, Huey increased the salary of the head coach to $75,000 a year, making him the highest paid public employee in the state. The coach would quickly become frustrated with Huey's near constant interference in his duties. Huey took on a very paternalistic attitude toward the football players, referring to them as his boys. He hosted new recruits at the governor's mansion for weeks at a time, feeding them steaks and milkshakes twice a day in order to fatten them up. Huey also made frequent appearances at the locker room during halftime, offering his own pep talks to the boys, while the coach stood silently fuming on the sidelines. At one game, when LSU was losing by halftime, Huey promised them that if they won, he would quote, give every slapdam one of you a job on the highway commission, end quote. That seemed to be incentive enough, and LSU ended up winning the game. As much as he wanted to, Huey could not follow his beloved Tigers when they went on the road, for fear that, when he stepped foot outside the state, his treasonous lieutenant governor, Paul Sear, would then move to oust him. Ever since Ransdell's term expired on March 4, 1931, and his Senate seat was vacated, Sear and other opponents of Huey demanded that he resign his post as governor to take a seat in the Senate. Huey, with a little over a year left in his term, refused to do so. Huey's anxiety over Sear caused him to cancel his plans to accompany the LSU football team to West Point in the fall of 1931. When Army defeated LSU by 20-0, an infuriated Huey blamed the loss on his absence. In October of that year, Sear, erroneously believing Huey to be in Mississippi at the time, filed a lawsuit to officially oust him as governor. A few days later, Sear unilaterally declared himself official governor of Louisiana, and he had a Shreveport judge administer him the oath of office. Sear was determined to take control of the state and undo the harm that he believed that Huey had done. Huey, who was actually in New Orleans at the time, raced at a breakneck speed back to the capital as soon as he heard that Sear was threatening to take over the governor's mansion. Once secure in his residence, Huey called out the National Guard. Dozens of men armed with rifles surrounded the governor's mansion and the capitol building, with strict orders to not admit the would-be governor entry into either building. By November, Huey had successfully argued before the state's Supreme Court that Sear's claim to the governorship simply had no legal basis. Sear's lawsuit against Huey was subsequently thrown out. Now realizing that he had, in the words of the Louisiana Progress's editorial page, quote, as much chance of being installed as governor of Louisiana as a Texas billy goat had of making a nonstop jump to the planet Mars, end quote, Sear gave up. He returned, defeated, to his dental practice in his hometown of Generette. Huey then declared that Sear was no longer lieutenant governor, appointing his ally in the Senate, Alvin O. King, to the position in his stead. With Sear now out of the way for good, or so he thought, Huey could now turn his attention towards his replacement for governor. The obvious choice for him was Oscar Kelly Allen, more often referred to as O.K. Allen. Allen is described as being mild-mannered and harmless. Of all of his qualities, the one that Huey valued the most was his blind loyalty and devotion. Much like Huey, Allen was a native of Wynn Parish, and he was one of Huey's earliest supporters, having donated $500 to his 1918 campaign for railroad commissioner. Nevertheless, Allen was frequently the target of Huey's verbal abuses, but, according to one author, Allen, quote, 
obeyed Huey's commands like a cocker spaniel, end quote. It was exactly this quality that led Huey to believe that, despite his doubts that Allen had the requisite character for the trials and tribulations that the office of governor was sure to foist upon him, Allen would nevertheless be the best choice to fill his position as governor of the state when he went to the nation's capital. For lieutenant governor, Huey tapped Jean Fournay, the prolonged speaker of the house. His choice of Fournay for lieutenant governor caused a bit of a rift in the long camp. For some time now, Huey's brother Earl had harbored ambitions to higher political office. He wished to be placed on the ticket as O.K. Allen's lieutenant governor, as he saw it as a reward for the faithful services he had rendered unto his brother all these years. In this particular matter, Earl had the backing of practically the entire Long family. To his shock, when he made the proposition to Huey, he was met with a blunt refusal. Huey gave him some canned excuse about how promoting Earl to such a position would leave him open to charges of nepotism. Although this was not technically untrue, Earl saw right through to the real reason why Huey had refused him. He knew Huey well enough to know that he was uncomfortable sharing power with anyone. What Huey wanted was a puppet in the governor's mansion, who would simply accede to his every demand, and he doubted his ability to control Earl, who was just as strong-willed and as hot-tempered as he was. Earl was understandably incensed at Huey's decision, and he made up his mind to run for governor either way, with or without his brother's help. He was backed in this endeavor by most of the Long family, including his brother Julius, who campaigned for him vigorously. Another familiar face had also resolved to run against Huey's puppet candidate, former Lieutenant Governor Paul Sear. However, neither Earl nor Sear made it to the election, both elected to drop out beforehand. Okay, Allen's primary opponents for the governorship were George Guion, an upper-class lawyer based out of New Orleans, and Dudley LeBlanc, an employee of the state's Public Service Commission. The election, which was held on January 19, 1932, resulted in an absolute landslide victory for the long ticket, with Allen sweeping 54 of the state's 64 parishes and receiving 56% of the overall vote. In late January 1932, with Governor Allen firmly in office and the state government underneath his grasp, Huey decided that it was time to finally take his seat in the United States Senate. He traveled to the nation's capital via train, accompanied by a large entourage which included his wife Rose, his treasurer Seymour Weiss, Governor Allen, Lieutenant Governor John Fournay, New Orleans Mayor T. Sims Walmsley, various other allies and cronies, and a full accompaniment of bodyguards. The party arrived in Washington, D.C. early in the morning of January 25th. Later that day, Huey entered the United States Capitol for the first time. He was immediately rather unimpressed with what he saw there. He balked against the Senate's all-too-restrictive rules and decorum. When he went to go take the oath of office, he strode into the Senate chamber smoking a massive cigar, in flagrant violation of the Capitol's no-smoking policy. Tradition stipulated that the incumbent senator from the same state as the new senator had the duty to introduce the new senator to their colleagues, but Huey's fellow Louisiana senator, Edwin Brossard, was an avowed political enemy, and he refused to do so. Huey was instead introduced to the Senate by Arkansas Senator Joe Robinson. Later that day, Huey received a press delegation in his office, clad in pink silk pajamas and smoking yet another cigar. When they asked if it would be more proper to address him as senator or as governor, Huey merely replied, quote, They call me the kingfish down there. End quote. And it is there that I will leave the narrative for the time being. With Huey Long having accomplished the next step in his plan to eventually become the president, 
Huey now had all the eyes of the nation looking towards his next move. What would he do next? You'll have to tune in again in two weeks to find out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else of that nature, please feel free to send them my way via my email address, historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you like this show and would like to help support it financially, you can do so either by subscribing to the show's Patreon or by buying some books from me off the eBay store, links to both of which can also be found in this episode's description. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you very much for listening, as always. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off. But there's nothing belonging to others. There's enough for all people to share. When it's sunny June and December too, or in the winter time or spring, there'll be peace without end. Every neighbor a friend, with every man a 